Can I get you to turn with me please to 1 Corinthians chapter 10? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's on page uh, 1152 of the Church Bibles. Uh, and you've got an outline which you received as you came in. It would be helpful to have that open in front of you as well. But 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, as Indran mentioned, we're between two series. Uh, and uh, we thought we'd better not to start a new series today because lots of people will be away. So we're doing this, uh, this, uh, this passage as a, as a one-off. And next week we'll uh, uh, start our series on uh, the Passion Narratives in Matthew. Uh, so we're going to go from Matthew 28. Uh, Matthew 28. We're going to Matthew uh, 20... Hang on, let me tell you. 26, thank you. Matthew 26, uh, right to the end of Matthew. Um, um, the next. Let's, let me lead us in prayer as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, we pray um, that today, as we read your word, and as we consider it together, we would indeed hear your voice, and we pray that uh, you would give us hearts that are soft, softened by your spirit, uh, so that we would listen and obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Christians in Corinth were in danger. They had been converted under the teaching of the Apostle Paul. The fact that Paul was an apostle meant that he had been given special authority by the risen Jesus himself as his personal representative. But the Corinthians were listening to other teachers. Teachers who told them what they wanted to hear. Teachers who were guiding them away from Christ and the apostle that he had appointed. Teachers who were leading them into idolatry and sexual immorality. Teachers who told them it was okay. They've been baptized. They have the Lord's Supper. They're okay. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, what we now call the sacraments, they would keep them from spiritual harm. So they could kind of like do what they like after that. Doesn't matter how they live, doesn't matter what they did, they're okay. And Paul says to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware. Don't be ignorant. The Old Testament has something to say about this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud. All passed through the sea. Now, the forefathers that he's talking about here is what? It was the Israelites of old, isn't it? Right? It's God's people that he rescued out of Egypt. And Paul is writing to this Gentile church, these Corinthians, and saying, these are our forefathers. And even though the Corinthians weren't physical descendants of these people, most of them anyway, but they were spiritually. See, the New Testament people of God, we are, the, we are the spiritual descendants of the Old Testament people of God. We are heirs to all their promises. Because the Gentiles, the non-Jews, have been grafted in, we've become part of the true Israel. And so it is right and proper for them to look back at Old Testament history as their history. God's dealings with his Old Testament people was part of, part of their story. If they want to know who they were, where they've come from, what their identity is, that is where they're to look. He says, look, our forefathers went through the cloud under the sea. 
And friends, that's exactly the same for us, isn't it? We can trace our spiritual ancestry back to the people of Israel. We look to Abraham as our father and God's promises to him. We think about our ancestors in Egypt, how God rescued them, brought them to the promised land. How they rebelled against God and fell into idolatry in the land and God kicked them out. And we remember his promises through the prophets to restore them and rebuild his people. And we recall how all those promises were fulfilled in the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross and rose again. And then how we, who had been excluded from citizenship in Israel, we who were foreigners from the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world, we were brought in through the blood of Christ. And being united with Christ by faith, we're included in this new Israel, we're included in the people of God, under Jesus the King. And so when we look back at the history of the God's people in the pages of the Old Testament, We are looking at God's dealings with our fathers. What was it about our fathers that Paul wanted to point out to the Corinthians? What is it about our fathers that the Holy Spirit wants to point out to us? Well, firstly, remember they had their Old Testament baptism. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 10. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. And all passed through the sea. And were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Those of you familiar with your Old Testaments will know that after God rescued his people from slavery in Egypt, led them out into the desert. Led them in a pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. He led them across the Red Sea and by his mighty power parted the sea that they walked through on dry land. Paul says in verse 2, they were all baptized into Moses in that cloud and in the sea. Because baptism symbolizes exactly what happened there in Exodus, isn't it? God's people were saved by him and they emerged through the sea on the other side as the new people of God. And whenever people are baptized, it's a sign that points to the new life that God gives to those who trust in Jesus. Our forefathers experienced that baptism equivalent. They were baptized into Moses. And then they had the Old Testament equivalent of the Lord's Supper. Now, when I say the Old Testament equivalent of the Lord's Supper, it wasn't really the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper was started by Jesus the night before he died. And in the Lord's Supper, we remember, we eat bread and wine to remember that Jesus died for us. And as we eat and drink in remembrance that he died for us, we do so in faith, in trusting in him. And whenever we are trusting in Jesus, whether it's at the supper or whether it's at some other time, whenever we're looking at the cross in an attitude of faith, then we are feeding on him in our hearts. But when we do that in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing on the outside is pointing to what is happening on the inside. And the fact that we do it together points to our deep unity in Christ. Now the old Israelites of old had not the Lord's Supper, but something like it. It, Because their eating and drinking physically symbolized and pointed to a spiritual eating and drinking. Verse 3 and 4. They all ate the same spiritual food. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. They were all given manna to eat, 
food that prefigured and pointed to Jesus, the true bread from heaven that was going to come. The water that God provided them from the physical rock, physically sustained their life, pointed them through the water they drank spiritually, the, the sustaining presence of Christ with them, even though they didn't know him as such. Like our meal points us back to Christ. The food and drink they had pointed forward to him. So they had an Old Testament equivalent of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They fell under God's judgment. If you think baptism in the Lord's Supper is going to save you, then think again. If you think that you can live the way you like and then count on baptism or the Lord's Supper to protect you from consequences, then please think again. Our forefathers were baptized into Moses, drank the spiritual food, drank the spiritual drinks, and they were overthrown in the desert. Their bodies were scattered throughout the desert. They died under the judgment of God. And brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit tells us in verse 6 that these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. These things took place as examples for us. If we follow them in being people who desire evil, if our hearts chase after wrong like they did, then we will suffer the same fate as they did. We'll come under the judgment of God. And Paul gives us four warnings from Israel's history where these evil desires are manifested and God's judgment is poured out. All come from the time when Israel was in the desert, after they had been released from Egypt, before they entered the promised land. Four warnings. The first one is a warning against idolatry. Verse 7 he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, the quote is from our Old Testament reading from Exodus 32 verse 6. In Exodus 32 we read that the people of Israel had recently been um, rescued from Egypt. They were at Mount Sinai. God had just spoken to them from the mountain. Moses had gone up to the mountain to, to, to receive more instructions from God. And meanwhile, back in the camp, the Israelites were tired of waiting for him. They spoke to Aaron, Moses' brother, remember? He was the one who God appointed as Moses' spokesman. And they said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Maybe he got lost trekking up the mountain. So what does Aaron do? He gives in to the people and he makes a golden calf. And then the people say in verse 4, they say, These are your gods, O Israel. Or you could say, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And Aaron builds an altar in front of it. And he says in verse 5, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, the true God. 
You see, what he's saying is, look, technically, let's argue that, technically we can argue we're not really worshipping another god. We are worshipping the god who brought us out of Egypt. We're just worshipping him in the, the form of this golden calf. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. You know, burnt offerings and peace offerings. That's like they have with Yahweh, isn't it? They share a fellowship meal. They sit down to eat and drink. It's like they do when they're worshipping Yahweh. And they rose up to play. The dance and revelry. Probably sexual orgies like the pagans did when they worshipped their fertility gods. stems from the fact that God's people have evil hearts and they depict him in an idolatrous way just like he told them not to. God had spoken to them and said, Do not make for yourself an idol in any form. Heaven or on earth or under the earth, do not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And that's exactly what they did. unthinkable unfaithfulness. It's just atrocious, isn't it? To depict God as this golden calf do exactly what he said not to do. And Moses had 3,000 of them executed. God judged more of them with a plague just like he'd sent to their enemies in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, we must be careful how we worship God. We must be careful. Do not worship Him in ways that He has told us not to. Do not bow down to images or pictures or statues or idols. Do not bow down in worship to anything except God Himself. Worshipping false gods or even worshipping the true God in a false way, a way that he has forbidden, will bring his wrath. God is God. He is dangerous when provoked. Not to be trifled with. Let us not become idolaters as some of them were. The second thing Paul warns us about is sexual immorality. Verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 10. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. The reference here is an incident recorded in Numbers chapter 25. Now, this first generation of Israelites, the ones who had got abroad out of Egypt, were nearly all dead after wandering in the desert for 40 years. And at last, Israel was, was ready to go into the Promised Land. And they were camped right at the edge of the Promised Land, in the plains of Moab, just across the river from the land they're going to enter. But instead of looking forward to what God was going to do when he brought them into the land, Instead of looking back at the faithfulness of God and rescuing them from Egypt and bringing them to this point, the Israelites looked around at the people of Moab and the religion of Moab 
And they found it so attractive because, because central to their worship was the practice of sexual immorality. They worshipped fertility gods and so they did that by performing sexual acts. And the men of Israel, because they desired what was evil, sex outside marriage, followed them into idolatrous immorality. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. Verse 9, if you just, can we go back to that last slide again, uh, Carol? Thanks. 24,000 died by the plague. 23,000 on a single day, another thousand of complications later. And the point here is about sexual sin. God will not tolerate sexual sin. What Israel did as people who were meant to be God's people, that, that was inexcusable and God's anger burned against them. He punished them for their evil. And Paul says to the Corinthians, do not commit sexual immorality. Do not have sex outside of marriage as some of them did. I wonder if there's anyone here who needs to hear that warning. Or anyone here who is engaging in sexual relations with someone who may not be your husband or your wife, as the case may be. If anyone here is in danger of falling to that trap. Or if anyone here has plans for Valentine's Day that defy the word of God. If it is you, and the Holy Spirit says to you today, through his word, this Bible, don't do it. Israel looked at Moab and said, Hey, that's part of the Moabite religion. Why didn't Moab do what the Moabites do? Don't you go and look at secular society and say, Hey, it's part of modern secular religion. When in 21st century yuppie Malaysia, do what the 21st century yuppie Malaysians do. That's idolatry as well as sexual immorality, isn't it? Don't say everyone is doing it. You're not everyone. You're a Christian. You're one of the redeemed people of God. Uh, you are in fact in a far more privileged position than the Israelites were of old. You have heard the gospel and all its implications. You have seen the full revelation of the Son of God. You have been given the Spirit of God. And now you want to go and indulge in sexual immorality. It's inexcusable. Do not adapt the standards of Moab. Do not provoke God to anger. Because God will punish sin. Verse 8 again. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. The third warning that Paul gives us here is against testing Christ. Verse 9. We must not put Christ the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now the incident referred to here is something that happened just a little bit before uh, what we read about before. Uh, it's from Numbers 21, verse 4 to 6. Uh, that's coming on the screen. Numbers 21, 4 to 6. People of Israel were getting disheartened by their long journey and they began to complain against Moses and against God. 
They say in verse 5 to, to God, Moses, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water. We loathe this worthless food. There's nothing here to drink. You know, this, we hate this yucky manna stuff. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for dinner. God was meant to be testing them in the wilderness. But instead they had the arrogance to presume to test God. They didn't actually believe he was looking out for their good. He accused them of what? Leading them out of Egypt with malicious intent to kill them in the desert from hunger and thirst after, after he's been sustaining them for all these years. They're ungrateful for their salvation. They provoke him. See how he responds. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. They bit the people. So many of the people of Israel died. They didn't ask him for supplies. They just took it for granted that he should make sure that they got him. They didn't humble themselves and acknowledge their dependence on him. They didn't come before him and beg him to provide. They just attacked him. But it looked like they weren't getting what they wanted. Or they felt they needed. The attitude was all wrong. Instead of trusting him, they tested him. And Paul says in verse 9, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Are we in danger of testing God? We attack God instead of begging Him to act. We refuse to humble ourselves and show our dependence on Him. Instead, complain when things don't go our way. Or do we provoke God to anger by our arrogance when we presume to judge Him and His motives when, when really He should be the one judging us? We must not put Christ to the test. Says. And then the fourth warning is verse 10 against grumbling. Verse 10 says, Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. In Numbers chapter 14, Israel was on the edge of the promised land, first time round. They're about to go in, but they sent spies first. And these spies came back saying, Oh, these guys are too big and strong. We can't wrest it from them. And the Israelites respond by weeping. Here's what they say, Numbers 14, 1-4. Oh, would we have died, in verse 2, would we have died in the land of Egypt, oh, that we would have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and little ones will become prey. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Now let me tell you something. Egypt wasn't that good. Right? They were there as slaves. They forgot all that. They forgot God's mercy in saving them. They forgot God's power in bringing them out of bondage. They forgot God's great providence for them in the wilderness. How they looked after him, that he looked after them to that point. They forgot to trust God. And instead they decided to dump Moses the prophet that God had given them, go back to their old lives, how it was like before God had rescued them. 
and God destroyed them in the wilderness. Not all at once, but slowly, over 40 years. Didn't take them in the promised land, made them wander around until almost that entire generation was dead. So he kept his promises, but these guys didn't get it. It's the next generation. They missed out because they failed to trust God and his prophet. And the Corinthians, they were in danger as well. They were complaining against the apostle that God had given them. And in fact were in the process of rejecting him for the false teachers who say it's fine to do all these sexual immorality and this idolatry stuff. And if they did that, they would also wander away from the gospel that this apostle proclaimed and be destroyed. Friends, let us not be like them. Let us not complain and grumble. Let us not despise the Christian life that God has given us. Don't look back on the life you lived before you were saved. It wasn't that good. We were dead in sin. We were under God's wrath, destined for hell. We were far away from Him. And He saved us from all that by His grace, through faith in His Son. Let's never look back. Things may be hard. We may wonder what God is doing. But never whine and threaten to go back to your old life. Let's not go back to the world's way of doing things. Even when being a Christian is difficult. And let's not complain against our apostles. People like Peter and Paul and James and John whose, whose writings have come down to us in Scripture. We need to accept what they have to say because like Moses spoke to the Israelites, they speak to us with God's authority. Can't just say, oh yeah, I agree with Paul on this issue, don't agree with Paul here. No, 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 I can't do that. And we can't just drop them for other teachers who agree with our biases and are willing to condone our sins. And it's not grumble, some of them did. And were destroyed by the destroyer. Friends, this is a very sobering passage, isn't it? Not really a Chinese New Year kind of celebratory kind of word. But friends, it is important. And we cannot just look back on what happened to Israel and say, Ah, that was for them. We are Christians. It's different for us. We're under the new covenant. Because look at verse 11. Now these things happened to them... As an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. You see, this Old Testament, this, this record of history of God dealing, God's dealings with His Old Testament people, that is the word of God for us. These things are written as examples for us. They are written to caution us, to instruct us, to warn us. We are the ones upon whom the fulfillment, the God of the ages has come. We are the ones who live in Christ, the one, and, and Christ is the one whom everything in the Old Testament points forward to and moves towards. We are no longer living in the times of the shadows, but in the times of the reality. And these instructions and these warnings are for us who live in that time. Those guys had been, slave, had been, had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. We've been rescued from the slavery to sin and death. They were heading for their promised land. We are heading for the new heaven and new earth, our promised land. 
the home of the righteous. They have the external law of God. We have been given God's Spirit who writes His law on our hearts. And so, brothers and sisters, we have so much more than they. And we stand to lose so much more than they do. They died in the desert. They missed out on their promised land because they rebelled against God. And if we show similar rebellion, if we reject the great salvation that God has won for us in Christ, then we will miss out on ours. And to miss out on heaven for momentary, idolatrous pleasure today, wouldn't that be a tragedy? Wouldn't that just be awful? Friends, we cannot be complacent. Verse 12. Therefore let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. If we think we are okay, then watch out. The Corinthians thought they were okay because they had baptism, they had the Lord's Supper, and they weren't. Neither are we. We're not immune from danger because we observe externals of religion. We're not immune from danger because we go to church and a cell group and do PTC courses. We're not immune from danger because we give time and money and effort to God's work. We're not immune from danger because we're involved in activities and ministries. We need to keep trusting the Lord Jesus. We need to beware lest we sin and sin and do not repent and finally lose our faith in Christ. There is nothing in this world that could be worse than that. Paul leaves us with two words of comfort at the end of this passage. Firstly, the testing or temptation we face is not anything special. Beginning of verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Remember the Israelites, they were sent through the waters of the Red Sea came out the other side and were taken by God into the wilderness. And the purpose of that was to test what was in their hearts. And being sinful human beings, they failed. And remember that Jesus, the true Israel, after he went through the waters of baptism, sent by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested as well, just like Israel of old. They were tested 40 years, he was tested 40 days. And he succeeded and remember how he told his followers to pray do not bring us to the time of testing lead us not into temptation because he knew that left to our own devices we would fail just like Israel the kind of testing the kind of temptation that is really there to test us and see what our hearts are really like well that was done by Jesus it was completed by Jesus He lived a perfect life on our behalf. Offered it to God as a sacrifice on the cross. That's why he teaches us to pray that we won't be tested like him. Instead we ask God to look on his life. His passing of the test. To accept us in him. 
And if that's the case, then the temptations that we face, they're not on the same scale. The temptations of Israel and of Jesus. They're not really designed to break us open and expose us for what we are. The, the sinfulness of the human heart has already been established. The temptations we face are just the ordinary, common, garden variety temptations that anyone living in this fallen world will face. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We've got it a bit easy compared to Israel and to Jesus. And the second comforting thing is found in the second half of verse 13. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. See, God God is sovereign. He is in charge. He is faithful. And he will make sure that we can cope. See, friends, it's right that we shouldn't be complacent. But we can also be confident that we have a sovereign God. God who keeps us. And if we belong to him, then he will keep us. God is not sitting there waiting for us to fail so he can punish us. No, no, no. He's actually on our side. And he will make sure that we are tempted no more than we can bear. He will make sure that whatever temptations we are presented, we will have the resources to deal with them. You may be tempted to idolatry. You may be tempted to sexual immorality. You may be tempted to test God. You may be tempted to complain and reject His Word. But you don't have to give in. Because God's Spirit is working within you. And the Sovereign God is on your side. So don't do it. You can fight and by God's grace you can win. Whenever you face temptation, know that God only allows you to face it because He knows you can bait it. And whatever temptation you face, God will give you a way out. He will give you a way of escape. So look for it. Pray for it. It will be there. If you belong to Christ, then God will keep you. But don't be complacent. Take the warning seriously. There's one more thing you need to say before the end of the sermon. It's on the passage because Paul's talked about it earlier on in the book and he'll talk about it later on in the book. But it's something that we need to hear every time we hear a message of judgment and warning, isn't it? The message is this. Christ died for our sins. Jesus has done what Moses in our Old Testament reading wanted to do but couldn't. He has made atonement for us. You may be someone who is guilty of idolatry or sexual immorality or of testing God or of complaining or of rebelling against the apostles' teachings. You may have needed to hear this word of warning 
But you also need to hear the message that Jesus died to save you. The punishment that you deserve has already been met. And Jesus' death on the cross, in your place, is sufficient to cover all your sins. Even the ones that Paul's just talked about. So if you come to him in repentance and faith, if you will turn and trust in him, then you will be forgiven. Freely, totally, utterly. God will not hold your sins against you anymore. I have no pleasure in the death of a sinner, says the Lord. Repent and live.